Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. Hi, everybody. Oh, boy. I just threw Sabrina an epic fourth birthday party for her preschool classmates this weekend at our new home. There was water play that devolved into turning my lawn into a mud pie bakery. There were bunnies. I flitted around with Rosé, and Sabrina, my four-year-old, kissed Brom in front of Teddy, and a little heart was broken. At one point, a parent asked me, how are you doing all of this with an infant? Uh, And of course, I had to say, (laughs) it's just a mirage. It felt a little like I was living in Elizabeth Day's brand new novel, now one of my all-time favorites, The Party. Her social commentary hits the nail on the head when it comes to the effort involved in seeming effortlessly put together, on our need to seem like we've got it together. The obsession with wealth and our Instagram attempts to try to look like we're living in a town and country spread. By the way, The Party was named one of town and country's essential books to read this summer. It also gave me flashbacks to my semester abroad studying at the University of St. Andrews while Prince William and Kate Middleton were there. But back to the party. Day's shrewd eye and authorial tone also provide a gleeful, edgy wit. That's from the New York Times Review, which also describes the thriller as a smart, irresistible romp. It is irresistible. I'd play it on my phone speaker, and I'm pretty sure my newborn Eliza, her first words might have a British accent now. In this conversation, I hope to tackle how both events from our childhood and our relationship to our mothers shape our adult selves. I also want to talk about what I'll call the good girl tax and the frustrations and lessons of infertility. Elizabeth Day, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Uh, I'm sure you've probably already sold the film rights to your latest novel, but if you haven't yet, and if you, let's say, were in the elevator at the Soho house and you run into a big producer, (laughs) a big Hollywood producer, how would you pitch this novel to her? Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Secondly, Sabrina's birthday party sounds brilliant and I wish I'd been invited. (laughs) And um, thirdly, what a great question. If I were in an elevator in Soho house, um, I would pitch it as a tale of a man who becomes dangerously obsessed with his male best friend. It's a sort of talented Mr. Ripley meets Downton Abbey in that it's obsession and hypocrisy um, in the heart of the British establishment. So um, I need to work on my elevator pitches, actually. I'm not that great at them, but I hope that conveys a sense of what it's about. Oh, absolutely. And I got, I, I'm going to cringe because there were so many moments where I was like, oh, no, this is me. Like there, the, there's a character of Serena who's sort of a Gwyneth Paltrow type. And I was like, oh, man, this weekend, especially with all the, you know, making the birthday party so perfect for my daughter. I was like, oh, I am just falling right into this trap. Um, But it was fun. (laughs) Uh, So go on. Yeah, I I love that. I love what you said in the introduction, actually, about um, the constant pressure we're under as mothers. I'm not a mother myself, but I imagine as mothers, but also just generally as women to make our lives seem effortless. And actually, there's so much effort going on beneath the surface. We're like swans, madly paddling under the water. And yet, 
striving to be graceful and put together on the surface. And you're so right that with the pressure of Instagram and social media, you constantly spend time sort of scrolling through feeds thinking, why am I not doing it as successfully as that other person? And um, I, I think, yeah, the tension between those two states was definitely something I was really interested in exploring in the past. I'd be super self-conscious to meet you in person because I, I know from reading this book that you have this frightening ability to suss out everything about a person, like from their likes to their quirks to their inner motivation. And I feel like if I met you, I might just feel totally naked. <laughs> and I'm wondering <laughs> if you can talk about what happened to you at age four, like my daughter is now four, that may have enhanced your study of human behavior. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot to me. And yeah, I actually think the age of four is when I started understanding that I existed as an individual person. I think it's a really crucial age, actually. It's when most of your memories, for me anyway, um, most of my memories began. And age four, I was living outside London with my parents and my older sister. Um, I remember viscerally adoring my older sister she's four years older but also being constantly frustrated that I couldn't do the things that she did so whether that be an art project or riding a bicycle I would hugely look up to her and that in itself like provided me with a massive sense of drive and I think it also made me want to differentiate myself from her because uh, my older sister if you ever meet her she's incredibly intelligent and um gorgeous looking and everything seemed to come easily to her and she was brilliant every single day at school and so I had to find a way of identifying myself and um, I'll just give you a couple of like examples but Please. my sister started learning the, the my sister started learning the violin and it was suggested that I would start learning the violin and I resolutely refused and I decided to learn the trumpet instead which is such a different instrument on every single level um, and then again, because my sister was kind of good at everything at school, I decided that I was going to be focused and I would be good at English and be good at writing and I would be rubbish at math. And, and I think so very early on, I decided that I, I wanted to be a writer. And then uh, I loved books. And because I was talking about wanting to be a writer from quite an early age, it becomes a virtuous circle. And my parents were very supportive of that and very nurturing of it and used to read me stories aloud. So. Uh, I think all of those things helped. And then probably more pertinently for the purpose of this discussion, age four, we moved from England to Ireland, um, to Northern Ireland, actually. And at the time, it was 1982, and the Northern Irish troubles were still raging. So there was effectively a, a civil war going on. And um, to speak with an English accent, as I do, was to mark yourself as an outsider, um, I had no affiliation with the military. My dad was a doctor, and that's why I moved out there. But I became very used to talking less because I hated the idea of people judging me um, and having a perception of me that wasn't accurate. So I became very used to listening and observing, and I think that in turn also led me into writing. One of the things that I took away from this book is... Um Hang on. Excuse me while I cough. This preschool cough, guys, it's it started up again. It's never going to end. Uh, podcast <laughs> listeners, just get ready. The next 12 weeks, you're going to hear me hacking. <laughs> I actually woke up my infant Eliza multiple times last night with it. So frustrating. So one of the things I took away from this book is how 
you know, a mother can really screw you up, you know, like <laughs> maybe I should put that in a different way. How, uh, how your attachment to your mother can really define you uh, in terms of how you see yourself, how you relate to other mm. people in the world. And I'm wondering, would you please do us the honor of reading that passage uh, about Martin's mother. It just gave me chills. Of course. So just to preface this quickly. Oh, um, yeah, tell Martin everyone who is Martin very... is. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. I, I, again, I tell you, I'm bad at elevator pitches. Uh, Martin is my main protagonist. He's a quintessential, unreliable narrator. I'm obsessed with him. Um, he's a boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, he's raised by a single mother. His father dies before he's born. And Martin, to get out of his background uh, wins a scholarship to a, a private boarding school and that's where he meets the wealthy talented aristocratic Ben Fitzmaurice who he becomes dangerously obsessed with through the course of his life and the passage that I'm about to read is Martin talking about his relationship with his mother Sylvia my father's death meant that it was just the two of us from the start there is a peculiar kind of claustrophobia that comes from being the only child of a single mother you learn quite quickly that nothing you do will ever be enough to fulfill your parents' yawning need for filial devotion. What starts off as love rapidly turns into a sort of inescapable hatred, and the hatred is even more needy, even more trapping than the love was. It sucks you dry from the inside. I think my mother's obsessive love for me coexisted with contempt for her own vulnerability. She was dependent on me for affection, and yet she denied that she needed it. I never met her standards because I never knew what they were. They seemed to shift and change on a whim. All I knew was that I was a source of near-constant disappointment. I, I am visualizing where I was on the road when I heard that passage. <laughs> I almost had to like pull over. I was like, whoa. The, the contempt oh. for the contempt for her own vulnerability. I mean that. Uh, I. I uh, it's harsh, isn't it? It's harsh. It's harsh, say, but like, you know, <laughs> you say it's harsh. I was about to say that reminds me so much of my mom. <laughs> um, oh really? Okay, good. The I mean, contempt for her own vulnerability. I think that's such a that's something we talk about on the show all the time. Um, how can we be available for our children uh, emotionally? And it's it's crazy mm. how we grow up learning to have these walls up uh not to let things affect us while we are striving and you know trying to be our you know make a mark on this world and yeah. not let our feelings get hurt and not be so sensitive and then and then now we're trying to you know show our own children that they can have big feelings and that uh, every feeling is safe and okay. Not all actions are okay, but all feelings are okay. Um, but we can't really do that unless we start accepting that ourselves. And I think a lot of us were raised by parents with contempt for their own vulnerability. I think that that's a huge uh, issue with society. I mean, we're all, you know, vulnerability is such a big word now. Everyone says it. But mm. I think that's because for, you know, generations— it, we haven't been allowed to have that. Like even little babies yeah. weren't allowed to I feel. It was like yeah. you're spoiling your child if you pick up your infant, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And also that sense that you were expressing about having to shield your children from your own experience. So as I mentioned, I'm not a mother myself, but I'm surrounded by children, many 
godchildren and two nieces. And for a period of time, I was married and I was a stepmother um, to two children who at that stage were four and seven. And um, my best friend has two young children. And she was telling me about how difficult she found it when her eldest son started school. And she found it really, really upsetting and very difficult to disassociate her own negative experience of starting school mm. with what Thomas, her son, might have been experiencing. Because she said, you know, I wish I could say to him, it gets better. But my own experience of school was that I just had a really miserable time. And I remember we had this really amazing conversation where I had to say to her, it's okay for you to feel vulnerable about what you experienced at school. But you've got to remember that what he's experiencing day to day won't necessarily be a mirror of, of what you did. Right. So, so, so it's, it's also like expressing your vulnerability so that you can set it free in a way so that then it doesn't become a prism through which to view everything when you're raising your own family. It's such a difficult thing. Right, because he can have his own story. But at this, but the same, exactly. and to recognize that yes, so many of the things that we end up re-experiencing, and I love how a lot of the parenting experts on this podcast have shared that that basically, whatever stage your child is in right now, you sort of relive that stage yourself. So if you had a very difficult, let's say, you know, my parents got divorced when I was five. So when Sabrina's five, who knows what's up for us, guys? coming next year for me personally, <laughs> that it all comes back up again. But that again, that it's not yeah. what our child will experience, but also, yeah, that fine line of how do we be honest about what we're feeling about an experience, uh, let's say in the present moment, you know, if we're incredibly frustrated, we can share that we're frustrated or that, you know, if we're scared that it's okay to say, you know, that that really frightened mommy, but without you know, putting it on your child or making them feel like they need to take care of you, which is what happens with Martin, that he's so fully responsible for all of his mother. Like every, you know, he's basically consumed by her and living for her and how that can damage a person. How did you come up with that idea of the mother? Um, I I realized I'm quite obsessed with the idea of mothers and fathers, actually. Um, and I have to make clear at this point that this mother in the party is in no way based on my own mother, who is the kindest, most <laughs> lovely person you could ever hope to meet. Um, but I do think we are so shaped by our upbringing. And I, because I have the lucky experience of feeling very loved by my own mother, I think I wanted to explore on the page in fiction what it would be like to be raised by a mother who found it impossible express any love that she might have felt and that is Martin's experience and I also have experienced um, you know a lot of my former partners um, were only children mm-hmm. and um, and one of them in particular was the only child of a single mother and I do remember the suffocating sense that he felt of sort of responsibility because there's no one else he, like yeah. he had to be her entire family um, and vice versa. And so I just thought, what if there was an only child, single mother scenario where there was no expression of love for whatever reason, like that had got lost. Um, not to say that love wasn't there, it's just that there was, it just became warped in the uh, silence of it. And um, and so, I, yeah, I, it sort of came to me from those experiences. And Martin, the more that I wrote him, the more I realized he wasn't just an unreliable narrator. 
he was someone with sociopathic tendencies. But everything that Martin does that is quote unquote unlikable comes from a place of vulnerability and comes from his own upbringing. So I only needed to explain that as possible. I didn't want to cheat my read for her. Mm-hmm. Developed. In the book, Lucy, Martin's wife, she's such a fantastic character and she's such a smart cookie and she's such a feminist. And oh, I love at the beginning when you when uh, Lucy calls the men out for only wanting to name famous male writers. And she's like, but what about this female writer and this female writer and this female writer? And why not, you know, just because they write about relationships and merit, you know, children and like, why, why are they being discounted? And, and I loved that part so much. And at the same time, she loses herself in her relationship and she protects Martin and she changes for Martin. She pretends to like food that she doesn't actually like. Um, for Martin and and listeners in the book, it's so cool because the the novels told through Lucy's journal and also uh, through Martin's retelling. And some of my favorite parts is are when Martin will share an experience, and then you'll hear Lucy's side of it in the next chapter. And uh, and so that's how you find out that Lucy actually doesn't like the restaurants that they've been going to. Um, and I'm perpetually battling my need to please and to be the good girl. Um, it's pretty easy mm. for me to be a chameleon uh, and sort of shape shift and adapt for who I'm around. And I'm shaking mm. that uh, good girl tendency. I really felt that the morning after uh, our recent election that that like, wait a minute, like, why play by the rules all the time? Like, wh- like it doesn't work. Like, why? Anyway, I don't need to get into politics now, but that was a big moment for me. <laughs> and, and in a personal essay, you wrote, um, and I'll quote it, For a long time at work, I think I believed that by being quiet and pleasant and capable and putting in the extra mile when required, I would be rewarded. Someone would notice what I needed without my having to tell them, which is bullshit. And I, oh man, when you wrote that uh, in a personal essay that I read online, I think it was for the Times, I was like, yep, yep, yep. So where do you think that need to please part of yourself that I also see in your character of Lucy, where do you think that came from for you? Wow, that is such a profound question. And uh, I'm loving your questions because they get totally to the heart of who I am as a writer. And Thank you. I, we, we sound very similar because... Um, as you quoted from that essay, I basically spent all of my 20s trying to people please in relationships and at work. And like you, I had this awakening. Um, and I'll come, I'll come on to that. But it is something that women in particular, I think, find very hard. And it's partly because we are raised in different ways from boys of our generation. So uh, I was raised in the 1980s and at that stage, little girls were still being taught to be pleasant and pliant and helpful and kind and nice, whereas little boys were encouraged to be bold and adventurous and to challenge authority and were kind of rewarded for that, or it was dismissed as, oh, well, boys will just be boys, you know, it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think there, there was a sort of cultural dimension to it. But from my personal upbringing, um, my family, um, who I love deeply, but we, we're quite British in the sense that if something major happened and if there were lots of major emotions involved, 
we would not talk about it. I mean, it would rush <laughs> under the carpet and we would soldier on. <laughs> so, um, and so, and I'm sure a lot of families can relate to that. Therefore, I became used as a child to um, sensing what an atmosphere or a mood might mean and trying to alter my behavior to make everything better or easier. And um, that stayed with me there as an adult. And I mean, particularly in relationships and a lot of Lucy's experiences, although she is in a fictional invention, but a lot of her experiences are lifted from my own life. So that thing of, you know, going out, I, I had a series of long-term relationships in my 20s. And I just remember being asked by a succession of boyfriends what, what I wanted to eat. Like, where do you want to go for dinner? And I would always say, I don't mind. Where do you want to go? And I would genuinely get to the point where I was like, I don't know what I want anymore. I yes. just, I want you to make the decision. And and that's such a it's a superficial example, but it but it it, it betokened something much much deeper, which was I was always the one to fit in with their plans. I was the one who would make an effort with their friends. And uh, you know, I I ended up uh, married, and uh, I was still this people pleasing person, and I ended up just cutting off all of my edges to, mm. uh, to the extent that I, again, I wasn't sure who I was anymore. And I was trying to fit into this box that I had a preconceived notion of. And I just imploded. And like you, I mean, you mentioned the election, but I, my personal um, election trauma was <laughs> that um, I have always wanted to have children and it didn't happen naturally. And I had two unsuccessful cycles of IVF. Then I got pregnant naturally and then I miscarried at three months. And it was a traumatic experience. That all happened within one year. And I remember coming around in the hospital thinking, I played by all the rules. I did everything I should have done. And I realized this is one thing I absolutely can't control. And playing nice, behaving well, did not help me have a baby. And genuinely, it was that moment. I was like, right, something needs to change. And, and I... And I really have changed since then, thank goodness. And I'm much happier as a, as a result. And, well, I, let me share um, that moment because, yeah. God, your writing is just like, uh, it just, I can't. I don't have the words. You're the writer, but thank it's, you. I can't get over it. So let me share thank this you. moment because I want our listeners to hear this is further down in that personal essay. It took me a long time to realize it was bullshit, but it happened. The fragile edifice of my self-belief, that unstable scaffolding that masked the dilapidated building beneath came crumbling down one day in October 2014. I was three months pregnant, and I had a miscarriage. Earlier that year, I had undergone two grueling and ultimately unsuccessful rounds of IVF. Throughout it all, I had been determined not to make a big deal of it. After it was over, I returned to what seemed like normality, except I didn't. Something had shifted. On one level, it felt as though my body hadn't done what it was meant to do, and it struck me that no matter how hard I tried, no matter how well I behaved, no matter how much work I put in, there were some things in life that lay beyond my control. Being a good girl hadn't worked. So, uh, before I cut you off, I feel like you were heading in this direction. How has your life changed since you've started? become more aware of your people-pleasing tendencies and how, and since you've started living more truthfully. God, it's actually really um, amazing to hear those words that I wrote uh, like, just spoken in your voice. Thank you for that. It really is quite um, interesting for me to hear kind of a year on from having written that piece. So things have changed. I, I uh, left that marriage, uh, which was 
a very difficult thing to do. And uh, I then entered one of the hardest periods of my life, but also one of the most rewarding in that I realized how loved I was by, by my friends and, and my parents who were amazing. So um, I went and lived with my mother for a few weeks and I moved in with a really good female friend of mine. And then uh, for a total shift in pace, I moved to LA for three months and Los Angeles was the place that put me back together. And I'm forever grateful to that city. And you might be the only the person on I'm the planet there. to ever say that. <laughs> Everybody else. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think of it as and a city really of broken dreams, but I'm kidding. Go on, please. Oh. <laughs> um, it's so, I think, I think um, well, this is a whole other podcast, but I think <laughs> it, Los Angeles is as, as many cities as it is people who live there. Um, and I was very lucky in where I ended up. I uh, got an Airbnb in Los Feliz. I met a That's really beautiful group of people. Yay! Yay! Oh, my favourite part of LA. Oh, um, yes. My cousin lives there, actually. So she was the one person I knew in LA, and she's more like a sister to me. And it, something about um, being, obviously, in the sunshine, somewhere totally different, where uh, no one had any context for me. I wasn't anyone's wife. Uh, I was who I was when I arrived. And also the time difference, um, being eight hours behind the UK meant that suddenly I wasn't being harassed. Uh, I, like I found emails easier to deal with. Um, there wasn't this constant shower of communication. It was very important for me as a writer. And much of the party was written actually in the Lost Figures coffee bean, which um, has a patio. And because I'm a British person, I'm obsessed with the sunshine. So I would go and sit in oh the patio, God. get a tan, write it's, the party. It's like in the Albertsons and parking lot, right? Yes, yes, I love it. It's got such a weird but unique vibe. Um, it's great. Absolutely loved it. And um, uh, so I wrote much of it there. And then I came back. So that was the best part of the year. Uh, I came back. I hadn't really wanted to come back, but I had to for work. And I felt sad to be back in London. And then a friend of mine uh, invited me to her Christmas party. And I went along knowing anyone other than my friend. And halfway through that evening, she said to me, I'll meet my brother. Jasper and I turned around and I met this man and he was the most handsome man I've ever seen and he's now my boyfriend and um, and uh, he is an amazing amazing man he's incredibly kind and funny and uh, listens and has really enabled me to be myself with him in a way that I've never been able to be in a relationship before I think I thought I was able to but I wasn't and um, that's why actually the party is dedicated to him do you think what I think what what surprised you? I'm just going off the rails now. But what what's what uh, <laughs> what what did you discover? Like, what was the craziest thing you discovered about yourself in meeting Jasper? Like, what's something that really surprised you about yourself? Since you clearly are a behaviorist and study people for a living, because your <laughs> character descriptions are just mind blowing. So, what is something that surprised you about your own character? Oh, thank you. Well. I was really surprised by how strong I was, um, which was a very, very pleasant surprise, actually, because uh, as I mentioned, I'd always been in relationships. I mean, I'd been single for, for two months, the maximum of two months during uh, my adult life. And um, I discovered that I could do something that I never thought I'd have the courage to do. And I was OK. And I mean, I, it was really tough. Don't get me wrong. It was really tough. Um, 
But I think I was guided by an instinct that it was the right thing to do. So I realized I was strong. And I also realized that my instincts are incredibly important. And to listen to that, it's not even an internal voice. I wouldn't even put it like it's not just the internal pull towards something or push away from something. I really need to listen to that as a woman, also as a writer. Like I really need to trust my instincts. Um, so those two things. And then the other thing that's kind of allied to the strength bit is that at a time when I felt very vulnerable, I found it important to, to, to really work on my physical strength. And for the first time, I started exercising really regularly and finding a kind of joy in that. So I started running. I went to spin classes. So when I was in LA, I went to flywheel, which I loved. And, um, and it was something that I'd never been into before. And, and it was really important for me to feel good about myself and to feel empowered as a woman. And um, those, those three things have really kind of stood me in good stead, I think. I'm smiling right now because I, I know that my longtime listeners right now are like grinning and being like, of course, Ellie had Elizabeth on the podcast. Like everything you're saying, we talk <laughs> about again and again. And um, man, I kind of living parallel lives a little bit or have definitely wow. been on the same path of uh, God, so cheesy self-discovery. But it's the mm. truth. I'm I'm curious if you could share a little bit about the psychological impact of infertility, because we have shared, we have a wonderful episode about pregnancy loss. And it's, uh, uh, you know, a, so any mothers out there who have a friend who is um, grieving a miscarriage or a pregnancy loss, you know, listen to that episode because it really shares how how we can be supportive to those mothers and what to say and what not to say. Um, we have not tackled uh, infertility yet, and so many of my friends have gone through that, and I'm always at a loss, and I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of insight into that experience. I know it's so personal and different for everyone, but what that was like for you, how you're handling that now and also what you know what should we say and what should we not say of course yeah i it's it's a really important thing and it's not talked about um as much as it should be and i think it's partly because the processes are still in their infancy and so there isn't as much literature out there um and well, one of the ways that I dealt with it, actually, I should just say quickly to preface all of this, is by writing the character of Lucy in the party because mm. she has a miscarriage and a lot of her um, contemporaries are having children and she's really struggling. And actually writing Lucy was very cathartic for me. But um, I had no idea when I went into the IVF cycle what to expect. <laughs> I didn't even know that I had to inject myself. But you, you inject yourself daily with hormones that cause you to react differently and I think I'd really kind of minimized the impact that I thought it was going to have on me because you know if you're injecting hormones every day you're going to act slightly crazy sometimes mm -hmm. and um that's that's fine but you kind of need to allow for that and I just went on and plowed on with work and it was way too much because doing IVF is like having an extra job it really is you have like appointments and internal scans every other day you're injecting yourself every day um and then 
you constantly have a kind of running commentary from often predominantly male doctors who will be talking to you about a most like the most intimate thing about how you know I responded really badly to the drug. So that's the way that they will express it. They will say you're responding badly to the drug and you're not producing enough follicles and you probably won't get enough eggs. And I remember talking to a really good female friend of mine about this and she said, that is so male. Like, how dare they say that yes. you're responding badly? Maybe it's the drug's fault. Maybe it's their fault that they're not, like, providing you with good enough medicine. And it was like, it totally blew my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, because I've just been blaming myself all along. I would say one of the things that's really helpful if you have a friend who's going for IVF is just to be there and to check in and to make them feel like what they're going through is valid. Because I felt, and I think many people who have IVF feel, a bit of a failure as a woman. And I sort of wanted to keep the whole medical procedure a bit secret. And actually, it was really lovely when I opened up to my friends about it, and they were incredibly helpful. Um, and then, uh, like, so when IVF isn't successful, or when you have a miscarriage, I mean, miscarriage, I didn't even realize I was grieving for a long time afterwards. And again, I think it's because my hormones were raging, and I'd effectively been pregnant three times that year because with each of the cycles of the IVF, I had an embryo reimplanted. It just it didn't stick. And um, the hormones play havoc with you. And after the miscarriage, I think I went into a place of numbness. And my best friend, who I mentioned earlier, described it as seeing me behind a perfect screen mm-hmm. and kind of knocking on the screen and trying to get through to me, but she couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I would just be hyper aware if your friend is going through that. That is probably a manifestation of grief that they don't even realize they're having yet. Mm-hmm. And the best thing you can do is be there for them. And also, People differ on this, but it's kind of sometimes unhelpful when someone is seeking through best of intentions to make someone feel better for them to say, well, you know, I know someone who had three miscarriages and now they've got a family of four and it was fine for them. Uh, it, there are varying degrees of helpfulness to that. And <laughs> You're um, being so polite I right now. I want to be like, what's the dumb bleep we shouldn't say that's like horribly know, offensive? Like one thing that would come to my mind is like, oh, well, my um, my husband's aunt uh, had a hard time. And then <laughs> the second she adopted, then she got pregnant twice immediately. You know? Yeah, that's another one. I'm sure you hear yeah. that. Yeah, that. Or, just, yeah. That happens a lot. I, I find... You asked me how, it, how I'm dealing with it now, and it, you know, it, it never really goes away because now I'm 38, um, I'm going to be 39 in November, and I'm just very aware that um, time is moving on and I need to make some smart choices about that. And I did actually freeze my eggs uh, this time last year, but once again, I only got three and I didn't respond well to the drugs, so that's like a whole other thing. But um, I find it difficult when... And it, it happened actually to me on Saturday. I went to the christening of um, one of my nine godchildren. That's the other thing that happens when you don't have children yourself. You get asked to be a godmother the whole time, which is lovely. But I went to the christening and there were loads of families there. And the first question I was asked was, where are yours? Like, where are mm-hmm. your children? It was just assumed that I'd have children. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I don't have any. And I know that when I say that, there's a whole raft of assumptions that goes with it. I think some people labor under the misapprehension that I love my career so much that I wouldn't have time for children. And it's not that at all. And that's the other thing I would say when you're talking to people who might have had infertility issues, just to be really sensitive about what you say 
you know, like when you confront the the idea of like who has children and who doesn't, and also if you're complaining about, which is totally understandable because having children is incredibly hard, but if you're saying, oh gosh, it was so difficult because I was like up during the night and I had these two kids and it's really, like there's just a time and a place for that. And a lot of people who struggle with infertility feel like they would give anything to experience how difficult it is to get up during the night and sleep deprivation if you have a baby. Was that, that, does that make sense? Yes. I felt like I went on a massive so, rant. No, that's, uh, that's what this podcast is for. Massive rants, um, preferably in very posh accents. I, I think Yay. that that is one of the most important things that has ever been said here because, God, we just... It's so weird. We try to help, or I'll say this, but I guess I can't speak for other people. I try mm. to help or like make people feel better. And, and I've heard, a, and then you end up sticking your foot in your, your mouth because you, like, for example, I overheard once at a party, someone, you know, someone was suffering, you know, dealing with infertility and, you know, someone else had a new baby and they were like, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. And they try to kind of like throw their own life under the bus about like, yeah, but you know, you gotta wake up all night. Yeah. And you're like, that's, that is incredibly unhelpful to say. And then I was wondering, but so what, okay, I want to give you an example that makes me cringe uh, from mm-hmm. my own life. I was on set because uh, I'm a recovering actress and um, I was on <laughs> set and I was talking to the producer and she has, you know, a, a million movies she's and I asked her if she had kids because that's something that's like an easy thing to talk about because mm. she was asking about mine. So then my daughter. And so then I asked her and it was actually for a kid's film. And so I said, you know, do you have kids? And she said no. And then I didn't know how to pivot from there because I – yeah, it was like I didn't I, – I didn't have any – I, I was just trying to like talk about something like it wasn't like a do you have kids just because like that's easy an easy topic when you're in the kid yes mindset because it's like all we're consumed by so what is a way to like gracefully change the subject without you know making there be any weirdness there that is such an in- interesting question and so revealing from your point of view because I have been that movie producer as well in that I have definitely shown interest in other people's children and spoken about it and it makes such sense to me now hearing you say it that your automatic response would be and do you have kids to like express a fellow kinship and um, I'm trying to think what the so I've had people do that and I've said I think the onus is actually on on me because um, I think sometimes when I'm talking to people about their children, it's almost like I want to be open with that person. Like I want to almost unburden myself of this thing. And it's almost like I'm seeking to establish that foundation of fellow feeling first. So then sometimes if someone says to me, do you have kids? Um, And I will either say no and just leave it at that. And then the best thing the other person can do, I think, is just to carry on talking and be like, oh, um, I it just almost like it's almost like they've just said, "Oh, it's uh, sunny outside." Uh, to, to, to like right. treat it as nonchalantly as, as that, and just almost carry on the the conversation, and not to try and kind of make light of it and be like, "Oh, well, you must be so busy with your job," or right. 
must well, be nice to travel that's or what a smart decision <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right. exactly almost just to, like just to continue and just be like oh okay and um and just kind of carry on because but other times when I've been in that situation I've said no I don't have kids but um I really want kids and then that opens it up mm-hmm. um and sometimes actually that's that's actually probably a good way of coming back to a conversation like that is to say oh you don't have kids do you want kids I can imagine you being a great mother or something like that I mean you might feel that's overstepping the mark but that's something then that opens it up Mm-hmm. And someone can then kind of confide or not, and it's kind of up to them. And um, and it's really nice being able to talk about the fact that I want kids. Actually, when I was a stepmother, that was also an easy way out. I'd be like, no, I don't have my own, but I'm stepmothers too. And then that leads to interesting conversations. But I completely see what you're saying, how difficult that is if you are a parent. And, and yeah. No, it's just a cringeworthy I, I, moment. I have so many to pull from. But yeah. it was like, I wanted to just be like, no, this is my attempt at not being so narcissistic and like bringing the conversation back to you. Yeah. You know, but it's, if the problem is also I'm so empathic that I can, I, I, like I can sense a, like a bristling from the other person. And I don't know if that's because yeah. of the years yeah. of defensiveness about either the choice that was made or, you know, or the heartache. Um, and so then it's, that's why it's also hard for me to switch gears, but I'm yeah. gonna, you know, but I, it's so, it's so important for us to keep in mind that like all our belly aching, my God, you're, you know, I'm so glad that you shared that, you know, I'm so lucky that yeah. I was up at, you know, all night with my little Eliza. I mean, so, so I mean, lucky. I have to, yeah, but I have to, and that's beautiful of you to say that. And I have to say, I completely understand that mothers, need to talk about that stuff it's just that occasionally there's a time and place and yeah. so know your audience like moms just we, we just got to know yeah. our audience yeah, exactly. <laughs> i was yeah all and also the other thing that, yeah, the, the other thing that people say a lot which we touched on is um you know what having kids isn't all it's cracked up to be and that is something you can only say from the privilege of having had children yep. so for me to hear that is like okay maybe not but you know what? Infertility isn't that great either. So exactly. uh, just throw me a bone here. <laughs> totally. But that also comes back into like our other like big problem as a society, or at least as women, besides the whole good girl tax, it's the, the what my girlfriend Teresa Palmer calls the tall poppy syndrome, or I guess she doesn't, she didn't like, she just, she's from Australia and she says that's what they <laughs> call it. We don't call that in America, but call it that in America, but that she shared that on the show that, you know, this, that's our problem with like always trying to undercut ourselves to make someone else feel better. So yeah, I think that that's the root of that of like, oh, having kids isn't all that it's cracked up to be because it's like, I got to show you that things aren't that great so that yeah, I, like I can't feel good about you my know, situation. You know what I mean? Like so that you feel better. Yeah. Like that's part of trying to commiserate, but it just misses the mark entirely. Yeah. I think, to be honest, it's all about like um, just being candid and um, talking about stuff a lot more. And actually, if you don't know what to say to a friend who's going through some stuff, just saying, "How are you feeling today?" I had this amazing interview with Sheryl Sandberg recently of Lena wow. and um, yeah. Google and Facebook fame. And she was talking about when her husband died incredibly tragically on holiday. 
and how she had this group of girlfriends and they would say to her, not how are you feeling? Because that was just such an overwhelmingly open-ended question. They would always say, how are you feeling today? And Sheryl Sandberg was saying that that was incredibly helpful. And one of the most helpful things you can say if you're that friend helping someone through something is, I don't know how and I don't know when, but I know that it's going to be okay. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it will get better. And just and just giving someone the space, I think, to be honest and candid is one of the greatest gifts as a friend. So beautiful. Elizabeth Day, I have to tell you how I'm feeling today is pretty psyched <laughs> because I finished your novel at 2.35 this morning while nursing my daughter. And I, it's going to be, you know, I got it on Audible, but now I have to get the hardcover just so I can have it on my coffee table so I can talk to everybody about it. It's Aww. one of my all-time favorites. Uh, and I I can't, like, I just want to pinch myself that I got to finish now one of my favorite books ever. And then just hours later, I get to hop on a call uh, with the author in England. Like, this is crazy. Um, thank you so much for writing this book. I can't wait to read your other three now. Uh, thank you for having this important conversation with us today and for voicing, you know, the heart of so many women that have had similar experiences. And uh, yeah, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for saying such amazing things. You're honestly making me well up. I'm just so touched. Oh, it's uh, so good. Everybody. And, oh, go on. <laughs> oh, it's, just been, it's just been an amazing conversation. I've loved it. It's like these are the conversations women should be having all the time. And it's been a real privilege for me to be able to share some of that experience um, and to talk about the party to someone who lives in my favorite place, Los Feliz. It's just exciting. <laughs> well, we have a guest room ready for you anytime, please. Thank you. My husband's a screenwriter. Like, Thank we'll just have you. a writer's retreat. Um, so the party is out now. Everybody go buy it. Listen to it. Oh, it's so great because, like, on – I wish Audible were a sponsor because with if you listen to it, they've got, like, a great – they have an actress and an actor. So it's, like, each chapter is read by either the actress or the actor. So you really feel like you're in it. Um Go to AtomicMoms.com for our show notes. Um, see which podcast I'd pair this one with. Uh, join our conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Atomic Moms. And follow Elizabeth Day, who is quite the uh, tweeter. <laughs> follow her on Twitter <laughs> at Eliza. Uh, I said Eliza. Wow. That's because my daughter's Eliza. At I guess it is Eliza yeah. B. Day, right? It is. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say Elizabeth B. Day. day. Or, but Eliza B. Day sounds better. Yeah. Perfect. All right, everybody. Get the party. Get the party. Get the party. Until next week, trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.